yeah, it is very hard to apply、uh, any changes. People are resistant; they feel like they're going to lose their job. Really, to create a an inclusive community that you know it's not afraid of sharing their their mistakes. Hey, this is Hector Silva Peralta, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Hola, soy Hector Silva Peralta, y están escuchando a Avalanche Hour podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your premier destination for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host. Sean Zimmerman Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Vison Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. And Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. The intermittent storms impacting the West. Have also been beset by dramatic differences in temps. So hopefully you are finding yourself on the right side of the isotherm. Or if you're lucky enough to be in Alaska, Mother Nature hasn't let off the snow throttle since October, and you ought to be one hell of a strong rider by now. For our Canadian colleagues, seems like you all are getting the goods as well. And our European contingent is probably somewhere in between, but having a great time just the same. For the remaining mortals, the last. Eight weeks of the season are upon us. I seem to be stuck in a time warp and cannot believe it is March already. But isn't that how it always goes? We should count ourselves fortunate that there is enough snow to slide and ride on, and that we have the freedoms to access it at any time. For our listeners around the globe, we hope this show brings you some joy and enlightenment, even if you cannot get right out and enjoy the splendors of the snow at this very moment. As Shackleton said. Fortitudine vincimus. By endurance we conquer. All right. For today's show, we bring you a guest from across the equator, Hector Silva Peralta of Chile. Hector is a consummate professional, chasing winter to all corners of the world and looking to improve his own avalanche craft and that of his country people. His involvement. With the creation of Chile Avalanches is a highlight of this episode, as well as ideas he has for bringing his home country into the next evolution of professional practice. Here we go, lifting off with Hector. Welcome, Hector. Glad you could join us today at the Avalanche Hour. We're meeting virtually here in the depths of the high pressure system that's engulfed most of the Western United States in mid-January.、Um, where are you coming to us from today? Hi, Sean. Pleasure is mine.、Um, actually, where I am in Chile right now, in in the Andes, waiting for the, the, my time to go back to winter again soon.、And、this time, I will be going to Alaska. Excellent. Well, I、uh, I hope your travels continue to go well amid amid this pandemic we find ourselves in and the other challenges that are facing the globe. Glad you can still find winter at any time of year. And today's、uh, you know conversation, I want to talk to you about kind of your background and where you've followed different paths in this industry and the things that you do. So maybe tell us a bit about where you're from,、um, your history as a skier or a rider in the mountains, and maybe some of the different jobs you've had that have led you to where you are now. Yeah,、uh, absolutely.、Um, well, I was. Lucky to be born in a little town close to Portillo Ski Resort. I think it's a place that a lot of people know,、uh, especially in the U.S. and the, the Aspen community. It's very、um, aware of this place, and、uh, yeah. So I started skiing. I was four years old.、Um, And、uh, yeah, I we used to go there every every weekend.、Um, we were lucky to be living there. My dad、uh, used to work in a mine,、um, 
close by and we got really good deals on tickets like let's say five dollars for a day of skiing and otherwise would have been impossible for me to afford uh any sort of uh skiing so that made it possible and uh later i knew that i was really just i don't know being part of this of this place and a place that it's um worldwide famous and one of the best places i've ever skied also so yeah and uh later on i i had um, i lived in europe i started doing mountaineering but then my first um avalanche related work was when i came back to chile um to live permanently on 2014 and uh, I found a way to continue skiing. Um, I applied to this job as a ski patroller, and uh, it happened to be uh, Frank Coffey, my to be my supervisor. So I didn't know who he was back then, but uh, soon I learned that he was a really good person to learn from, and uh, he really just was very important in uh, the early stage of my avalanche um, career and passion and yeah he recommended me to well I, I wanted to learn more about avalanches so he said that I should continue studying and uh, I he said I should go to Canada they have the best training available and so I did and uh, yeah, that's how everything pretty much started to happen. So um, yeah. That's a good start to, uh, to any career, to be able to have a mentor like Frank come into your life early on and provide you with some ideas or recommendations. What, what was your patrol experience like? This was at Portillo, you said? Yeah, so yeah, my first year I was basically um doing like trail maintenance and uh, uh whenever we had snowfalls i would go and be a spotter and see what they were doing and i was just around and i was um i wanted to learn and uh i i tried to be involved with all sorts of things i was i think i was very ambitious i wanted to throw explosives and go and do ski cuts with the crew. But I, yeah, I just wasn't there. I wasn't ready and uh, I can see it now. But uh, at that moment I thought, oh yeah, I am ready. And, uh, you know, I was coming from this um, alpinist background. I was very confident, very young. So I felt like, yeah, I got this, but I was missing everything else that it's, um, knowledge about avalanches so yeah i i decided to take my caa level one and i asked frank for an advice and uh i said well there's some um, there's a lot of offer courses offering now um uh, from november through the end of the season and um i was just I didn't know. So he said, well, you should go to Revelstoke in January. That's where you'll find most uh, complex snowpack. Uh, at the beginning, it's going to be very simple. And at the end, it will be uh, simple too. So if you really want to learn something, you should go in the middle of the winter to, to Revelstoke. And um, I was like, okay, great. And um, he also said, well, um, he wouldn't talk to me about avalanches or questions or anything I, I had to say. And he's like, well, we'll talk next year if you pass. So good luck. And uh, the courses went well. And um, yeah, I ended up going to Alaska the, right after my course. And um, it happened that I met a lot of uh, his friends uh, in Alaska, 
And um, I also met um, my friend, well, Greg Harms and Scott Newsom, all of the people that really helped me from the very beginning, I met on my first trip to North America. Um, yeah, and well, right now I'm working as a heli ski guide for Bali's heli ski guides and for Third Edge. But um, yeah, it, everything just led to that. It sounds like you had kind of a fortuitous upbringing in the fact that you were able to get this mentorship early on, um, both in your home country and, and abroad, um, and you know, visit different snowpacks. Um, on the topic of snowpacks, tell us a bit about your like, snowpack climate where you live now in Chile and kind of how it might compare to the other snowpacks you visited in, uh, in North America for our listeners who might not be familiar. Yeah, well, the Andes are, um, they're changing, you know, like right now we have, um, we've been having really dry seasons lately, but um, uh, I would say it's continental snowpack similar to what you can find in the Rockies, in the Canadian Rockies, but we don't get the dry cold spells as they do. Uh, we don't get the Arctic flow effect. So the temperatures stays uh, fairly mild uh, through the winter and um, long periods of high pressure. Um, and then, um, yeah, big snowfalls. Um, sometimes you get all your snowpack in one snowfall and then a really long uh, time with no with no snowfall and then again we get um, a series of um, little amounts that then you know they it gets reset but um, yeah as you go farther up in altitude you definitely find more more amounts and um, colder temperatures but yeah, it's um I would say yeah, it's it's not as complex as you as as you find let's say in the Canadian Rockies or or not as complex as um the snowpack you find in the Intermountain or yeah. And yeah, fairly easier to res- compared to what you find in North America. And um, yeah, I've also heard, you know, a lot of people here, down here saying like, oh yeah, in Chile there there's no avalanches. And <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's a really bad myth, <laughs> you know? Um, and um, yeah, part of what we do down here is try to educate people and, you know, tell them, well, they're really avalanches, they're out there. Um, the thing is, there's no um, um, register, uh, you know, no document where you have the, the series of events, like there's no a public um, service that raises awareness, um, there's no avalanche forecast. And so, yeah, it's, um, I think it's, it's been, people are been getting away with it uh, and just because I think the snowpack, it's, it tends to be more stable than what it, in, in other regions that I visit. I've, um, I had some experience in, on the West Coast and uh, in Rogers Pass area. Um, in Canadian Rockies or uh, Alaska, in in uh, yeah, on on the coast and in Denali Mountain Range in Alaska Range um, in Europe, but yeah, I um, I do feel like the snowpack tends to be a little more stable, and that can lead um, to people think to have the wrong impression that avalanches don't happen here. So, yeah. And you certainly have plenty of avalanche terrain there. Um, maybe describe the terrain a little bit more, um, Portillo and, and the surrounding areas there and 
kind of the, the characteristics of the terrain for those not familiar with that part of the Andes? Yeah, well, it's big mountains, um, really like 40 degrees. It's kind of the average slope, <laughs> um, lots of overhead hazard and uh, the wind is crazy. So uh, wind loaded, uh, reverse wind loaded uh, terrain. It's um, it's big country and um, yeah, some of the slopes have, I don't know, 2000 meter vertical. Uh, um, yeah, so there's definitely potential for big size avalanches and um, yeah, terrain is pretty extreme. But then as you go south, um, more towards the volcano areas, um, the mountains are more, they still can be steep, but they are little or smaller, I would say. And uh, the snowpack also gets um, um, more of a coastal uh, snowpack. It's wetter, it stabilizes more quickly. In general, your vegetation line is much lower. Yeah, it's all alpine terrain um, in, in central Andes. Um, so yeah, the snow line right now starts at 3000 meter or about 10,000 feet and above. And you can ski up to 5,000 meters or higher. Oh, but yeah, and then um, in Patagonia, for instance, the snow starts at sea level and the mountains are considerably smaller, uh, maybe up to 3,000 meters. Um, so yeah, it's um, definitely uh, more of a coastal snowpack in different to our here in central Andes that it's just alpine and glaciated terrain. It's big, big terrain up here. So did you yeah. feel that uh, when you went to Alaska for the first time um, that you were more accustomed to looking at that kind of terrain due to your topography and geography there in, in Chile? Uh, well, the, the first time I went to Alaska, I, uh, I happened to be also, I visit, um, Valdez and that was something that really just changed my mind when I saw Valdez for the first time, uh, I was with my friend and I said, oh, this is, you know, this is insane and uh, everything looks so steep. And uh, I'm like, I'm sure we're gonna get the first ascent of that peak and that peak. And uh, and then, um, yeah, later I realized that uh, she was like, oh no, those are actually Heliski classics. I've done that a bunch of times. And I thought it was just crazy what people were doing there. And so that gave me a good perspective for when I came back and I started to see like, oh, there's a line there, there's a line there and things I haven't never seen before in my home country. It was kind of a nine eye opener. But um, yeah, I do feel like in just skiing in, in alpine terrain has given me more, yeah, like let's say when I, when I was taking my uh, guides exam, I had more trouble navigating through the forest that that I thought that was like my crux. Once I get to the tree line and above, I felt like, okay, I think I can manage this. That was quite my, I don't know, felt like that was my comfort, comfortable or more comfortable place. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, so when I did and took my first the first time I went to Canada to take my level one, that was in the trees. And that was six years ago. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting uh, position to be in where you're so accustomed to working and navigating above tree line where the avalanche paths may be less defined, but you can see greater distances. Um, and yeah, obviously weather affects the Alpine differently than the near and below tree line, but to, to go into that guiding, world where now you have lack of visibility um, due to trees and vegetation and terrain configuration um, where so many of us in North America have kind of grown up tree skiing or, or tree riding, depending on your conveyance, you know, uh, same goes for snowmobiling. You're, you're usually 
kind of boondocking through the trees and, and you kind of know how that terrain plays out. But when you get into the Alpine, that's where a lot of North Americans, perhaps Alaskans notwithstanding, um, kind of freeze up. They're like, whoa, this is big terrain. Nothing's as well-defined. So it's just interesting that, uh, that, that difference that exists. You, you talked a little bit about your guide training um, and, and you've talked about your avalanche training, but let's go with that guide track. Uh, what guide agencies or organizations yeah. rather did you uh, pursue your education through? Yeah, well, um, seriously, I, when I first started, I didn't know anything about, um, it was, everything was new. Like, uh, there's no offer down here in Chile. Uh, at the time when I started, there's, um, there was one company teaching, uh, um, AST courses, level one only. And, um, I took that and, uh, that course was a huge confidence boost, uh, I felt like it gave me like, oh yeah, I know. I thought I knew more than the course was giving me, so I was was pretty bad from from me. But yeah, and then um, yeah, I I went to Canada and took the, the level one, and I realized I didn't know anything, and uh, that was a very humbling moment in like uh, I I just started to reading more and uh i i was just fascinated and i wanted to go back every year so i went back to continue my training at the canadian avalanche association for the following year took my weather course and the the afsar and then it came back again and uh took my level two uh the itp level two and um meanwhile I was on a tourist visa, so I couldn't really get any work experience. Um, so I was just touring by myself with friends and with people I would know and try to get my curriculum to apply to the ACMG. I, um, I thought that was like the pinnacle of, you know, like for someone like me who loves the mountains and skiing, I, I was just impressed by them, the training. And then they were really, I mean, my instructors there were so knowledgeable. I just wanted to belong to that community. So I did my best and I tried to and apply once. I didn't make it and applied the following year. I got into the program and uh, yeah. So right now I, last year I finished the apprentice ski guide at the ACMG. And uh, yeah, I will continue to, um, I would love to continue to get more training. But um, yeah, I think the mentorship has always been a tricky one, especially because of the working um, capacity. You know, I can't really work us being from South America. So the visa has always been an issue and uh, it's always been kind of a, yeah, that's where I found, uh, I found a few people that were like really uh, keen on helping me. And uh, those were the people that actually influenced me the most um, during this time. And um, guys like, Scott Newsom from Eagle Pass. He was like, "Well, uh, I he has accepted me on a practicum, and then they gave me the opportunity to go back every year for practicums and uh, get involved with um, guides meeting in the morning and the PM, and uh, just see um, how to put your courses, your knowledge, everything in practice." The same with um, Steve Conker uh sorcerer lodge when uh back when he was there he also gave me the opportunity to spend some time up there um yeah jet workman baldi's heli ski guides the same they would just open the doors and be like if you just want to hang out i mean we can't pay you but you know just be part of the guides meeting a.m p.m and you know there might be a seat somewhere, I mean, a free seat here and there. And like, that was enough, you know? And meanwhile, it was just ski touring, building up my resume. And um, yeah, so I think I did 
a lot of my um, the things I've learned were based on my own personal experience in the mountains, and then uh, confronting my decisions with uh, with my with my friends like Jed or Scott, and it's like, hey, what do you think? Um, so yeah, I'm grateful for all of those guys. When those kinds of people come into our lives, we, uh, we may not realize the outsized effect they have on our perception until well years down the road. It sounds like kind of you reflecting on that experience now is really coming through that this was a big part of your ascension as a professional. So Hector, we've, we've talked a little bit about the training that you've received in different places. And, uh, I kind of want to rewind the track a little bit and talk about some of the things we alluded to earlier, which were maybe some of the cultural differences um, between your home country and, and, and South America and the mountains down there versus what you've uh, maybe experienced in North America. And you mentioned your travels in Europe. Um, yeah. So the cultural differences of recreational users and, you know, professional uh, workers. Yeah. Well, I, I think the most interesting one I've noticed, and that comes from um, a few years of just chasing winters back and forth Chile and North America, I've, uh, I perceive that down here in Chile, there's this um, um, human factor, but that doesn't fall into any other category of other human factors that you see on, on the actual literature we have. I like to call it the, the mystic. Uh, and uh, it's this, um, the idea of um, people doing certain things and they're like, oh yeah, but um, like my soul brother, I mean, he's taking care of us and, or the mountain, the spirit of the mountains are with us, nothing's gonna happen. And so they, they rely on that belief. And um, there's like um, a really poor assessment <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of trust and faith, it's almost, uh yeah it's um and it's something i've noticed only here and uh and i think i started to notice it more and more with contrast as i travel back and forth to north america um yeah uh in the professional side of things there's no cultural uh i mean there's no need for for anyone to to have an actual professional certificate to work. So with an AST diploma, you can work on a mine and work as an observer. All they wanna see is that you have some sort of avalanche training. So there's no need for the industry to hire uh, qualified professionals. There's no legislation that it's, um, yeah, uh, asking employers to, to look upon that. So. And there's no uh, guiding association at the moment that it's uh, setting the standards for what's a snow and avalanche uh, professional, uh, what's the qualifications they should have. And um, I think that's where we, I mean, uh, what we really wanna do down here with the few certified professionals and uh, aspiring professionals is, to address exactly that, to um, define best practices and um, best practices, I mean, not defined by, by ourselves, but to define those that are common across an international industry and um, to start applying them. But um, yeah, it is very hard to apply uh, any changes. People are resistant. They feel like they're going to lose their jobs. And uh, um, so it's been hard to push any changes for, for, more, um, for more certifications and for better standards. But slowly things are changing. Um, and I think that's, um, that just comes from an awareness work and telling people this is what you can expect uh, be beyond your AST courses, there's professional training and um, people just don't know. And now they're starting to know. And um, yeah, so I think that's how you create the need.
And uh, yeah, a huge step for us will be to bring professional training down here in Chile and uh, to have more avalanche professionals and um, to start, I mean, we would love to uh, start raising the standards, but we can't really ask for a type of um, standard if we're not able to offer that first. So we can say, yeah, to be a ski patroller, you need a professional level one avalanche course if you can take that within uh, the country. So I think that's the first step. It's a very good point. You know, the uh, accessibility of the training uh, before it becomes an accepted standard is really important. So in order to be able to qualify to take a professional level course, you have to have gone through some recreational training. So let's talk about what the current landscape looks like in Chile and, and maybe other parts of uh, South America that you're familiar with in terms of you know, how much uh, recreational avalanche training is, is available? Uh, yeah. Well, in Chile right now, there's um, three to five providers. And um, yeah, and I think I, I want to say we have, we estimated close to 250, 300 um, students that took their level one this year, this last season. Uh, as a total. And um, level twos are not really, I mean, they're really hard sell. People feel like, oh, I've taken my level one, I know everything. And uh, yeah, so level twos are not really that common. And uh, there's also, I mean, people trying to make efforts on doing uh, free training um, to reach those that are. Um, yeah, that don't have the possibilities to pay for a course. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the scenario right now. You bring up some interesting kind of socioeconomic points there in terms of, you know, the availability of training, the um, the culture of training, the accessibility that uh, some do and do not have. I mean, if if last season you put your estimate was 250, let's say 300 people went through avalanche training in the country of Chile. Um, you know, that number is exponentially larger in North America for just one season. But you bring up an interesting point that's just the same, which is a lot of folks take their level one, their, their first entry to the backcountry recreational level one course or um, an AST one. And that's where they kind of leave it for a little while. Um, and they don't necessarily see the value in continuing that education formally into, let's say, a level two course. Um, the, it's equally as hard of a sell here on this continent as it is down there, I believe. And that's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around um, as to why. Um, is it a marketing problem? Is it a content issue? Um, or is it a perception of value that folks get out of it? But something interesting to note that's uh, common across the equator yeah well um the feedback i received with that it's that um people want to learn snow science they want to dig profiles they want to learn um about crystals and tests so that's like that's a big step that's more like a professional level one training course uh the curriculum and uh and when they see that the level two, it's more about terrain management and it, it's more about, um, yeah, um, safety practices and terrain choices. And they just uh, become uninterested. It's like, well, we know that. But uh, I guess that's where I, where I have my like my difference you, know, you have a different opinion on that because if you're if you're teaching them um, like how to read uh, crystals and tests and to make the decisions in the back country with that information you're giving them um, a, a tool that it's uh, for a more advanced uh, user and I think with that level of training, they should still default to a more conservative approach, which is, okay, maybe I did them, 
I didn't choose the right location on my pit. So the only way I'm going to be safe, it's probably by choosing a safer route. And so I, that's why they don't understand is um, that they should still default to the conservative approach, which is um, selecting terrain wisely. And uh, yeah. And uh, when when you keep just stressing the same concepts and the same concepts again, it's like, yeah, they become uninterested. Uh, they want to go to the next step and make their decisions whether they want to ski a run or not based on uh, on a test or crystal observations. And what I often tell them, it's, well, even if you take your uh, professional level one course, you're not going to make that decision based upon your observations. That's probably even for a level two graduate with experience, with professional experience. So, and that's, I think it's key also for developing avalanche programs in other locations, like in other geographical locations, is to have a clear scope of practice of this is, these are your competencies, this is what you, are uh, capable of doing with this amount of training. And um, yeah, this is what you shouldn't do or so. So yeah, I think that's one of the things we're working on, but that's, you're kind of the bad guy, you know, when you're telling them, oh, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be calling yourself a guide or you shouldn't be leading down people on that slope if you don't have a CAA level two. And it's like, well, who are you? It's like, <laughs> you know, that's the main thing. Like that's the main difference I see in the cultural, I mean, cultural difference I see in the professional side. And in your, uh, in your ascension as a professional, you know, you've, you've taken these different courses that have also, you know, allowed you to be uh, an educator of recreational course offerings. So you, you teach AST courses there in your home country by way of uh, the training you've already performed and the curriculum you have access to from Canada. But here's a question I have for you. Um, North American avalanche education for a recreationist is focused around a bulletin and having access to a formal product to make decisions. Um, and I don't know the AST curriculum as well as you do, but you use tools that tie and link to the bulletin. Uh, working for Airy, I've come to look at it the same way as we give people tools that help them work around a bulletin. So in the absence of that, how do you help your recreational users progress um, from their first day of their level one to the, the third day of their level one and then maybe moving on to you know, a secondary course? Yeah, well, we use the um, Dangerator tool provided by Avalanche Canada. It's this tool that it's uh, available for um, um, regions with, with no forecast. Um, yeah, that's one of them. And then basically what I personally teach, uh, I yeah, that's a really tough one because I, for the first two years, I, I mean, being capable of teaching, I, I didn't teach any courses because I didn't want to send people out there without them having a forecast. When you're teaching them, you should make your decisions based upon the forecast. And um, then I came to terms with myself and I'm like, well, you're still going to teach them good terrain management skills, uh, route selection and uh, companion rescue. So we're like pretty heavy on companion rescue too and terrain selection. And then the, the dangerator tool, which is essentially um, you start at a considerable rate rating and then you go high or or you bring it down to moderate, depending on a series of questions, and uh, that's been um, that's been a good tool. Um, yeah, but there's not much more available. We we teach more um, where, or I personally teach um, the the route planning 
and yeah, route selection on Google Earth and uh, different um, technologies. Yeah, and map reading and other things are can help them be more um, self-sufficient. But yeah, that's uh, that's on our priorities to come up with the forecast in the short term. And uh, yeah, we are we're working on it. But like like I said, we need more professionals with uh, level twos and more level ones for information. And um, yeah, we do have also created a platform for information sharing that it's something similar to uh, what they're doing in Canada, which um, you submit a um, weather report or an avalanche observation report with a photograph. And it's a it's, um, GIS uh, data. So it's it's been uh, two years where, of course, it's, uh, it's just financed by ourselves. But I think it's um, the few people that have collaborated with us in submitting information have shown um, at least have shown us uh, which areas are more of interest, we, where people are recreating. Um, they're um, showing us if they are understanding avalanche problems or not. I mean, there's this um, multiple selection where they, when you submit an observation, let's say that's a wind slab or that's a dry loose and like we're just kind of assessing as we go the general knowledge of uh, our community and um, yeah, mapping skills, for instance. And uh, we, we've seen that people are like, yeah, we saw an avalanche on the east face and then there, the pin, it's located on the west face. So it's there's this discrepancy. I think we can get away with a lot of things because the snowpack seems to be more stable than other regions. And yeah, I mean, that plays to our favor. So it brings a false sense of security for a lot of people. I see. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of these initiatives you're describing, you know, kind of the, uh, the copy of the Mountain Information Network. And what are these initiatives? Are, are they a specific organization that you've started? Or is it a collaboration of professionals just trying to get together? Maybe tell us a little bit more about the formalities of of that yeah so um on during the pandemic you know we were locked in there we couldn't go skiing and um we pretty much found ourselves with a lot of time and uh we yeah we started talking about all these things like yeah let's come up with a forecast and it's like oops we cannot <laughs> have a forecast if we don't have people and then we created this um uh um, organization that um, that it's gathering all of these uh, different voices and we're like representing um, uh, more of a community concern here and um, yeah so basically we it's not the single individual anymore we're an organization of avalanche workers that are um, working for um, creating avalanche awareness. And um, so some of our uh, programs are um, avalanche to the public, to general public and people who don't have access to an avalanche course. Um, we've been working with Harry on the Pro One. Uh, finally, seems that we're gonna be able to offer the courses down here in Chile. And we're all coming to uh, agreement what's best practices and uh, how shall we address all of these problems? Can we have a representation, a common voice for um, with the government? And um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been good. It's been very slow and but um, yeah, people are very interested in in the program, um, professionals and also people who are um, 
using the information. Yeah, we're also sharing uh, information on social medias. We want to start doing tutorials of, uh, uh, you know, like backcountry tips or showing the snowpack and uh, snow test. And most of them, the videos you find and tutorials you find are in English. And um, we're, yeah, developing ours um, in Spanish. So I think that's part of the contributions. Excellent. And and what uh, what is your organizational name that you have chosen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Chile Avalanches. And the organization is comprised of uh, just a few of you professionals working together. This would be an opportunity to enumerate who those folks are. Yeah. Francisco Medina, he's an IFMGA guide. He lives in Canmore. He's Chilean. Um, and Luis Toro, he's a CAA active member. Um, he lives in Chile. Um, Rosario Toro also, and Francisca Navarro, they're all uh, CAA level one um, active members. Um, yeah, mostly uh, there's uh, Max Barros from the, the mining, uh, Codelco mine, then Chilean the copper mine, he's also involved. Uh, so yeah, we have uh, representations from um, multiple sectors, from the mining industry, from ski resorts, from uh, guiding and uh, avalanche instructors. Um, yeah, Jose Luis Troncoso from, uh, he's an Ayari instructor. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're a few right now. We are close to seven people on the, um, organizational side of things but um obviously expanding to with memberships with up to 30 people oh that's excellent and it seems like you're starting to gain uh, what i would call a critical mass uh, folks that are maybe in different regions different sectors to gather interest share observations um, and be able to maybe galvanize the community towards a, a common goal it sounds like um, what are some of, more of your goals that you hope to do with uh, Chile Avalanches? Um, well, yeah, well, I guess our main goal, obviously, is to create, um, uh, come up with a forecast um, and give um, information for people to understand what they're reading on the forecast. Um, yeah, we want to create also um, job postings and create, um, uh, let's say, uh, mentorship opportunities. Um, yeah, just know and have like, I don't know, forums of what's happening uh, in the mountains where uh, professionals can share what they're seeing with the general public. And well, I guess, one of the important things it's really to create a an inclusive community that you know it's not afraid of sharing their their mistakes and uh, I guess it's our job first you know to share our mistakes and then people will do the same and um, yeah there's a there's a, still a lot of uh, resistance on on that and sharing I mean. A lot of the reports we got from this previous season, like close calls and avalanches, they were, um, we knew about them for different like private circles through WhatsApp groups and things, but people don't wanna like disclose that information for the fear of being judged or they're gonna close access or other things. Um, they don't want to give out the locations. It's like, oh, conditions are good here, but this is my secret spot. And and um, yeah, so a lot of um, things that are not only related to lunches, but we hope to open this also as a um, community. Excellent. In the spirit of information sharing and uh, talking about those kinds of things, you know, is there a moment in your career or 
as a professional or recreationalist that was either a close call, a near miss, or just some sort of moment of enlightenment that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I guess moment of enlightenment was when I first went to Canada to take my course. And uh, I realized that, uh, well, after, after the course, we went touring to Rogers Pass and uh, um, yeah, all the resources that were available. I, I was impressed. I'm like, I want to bring some of these ideas back to Chile, you know, and uh, that since my first uh, course i've been working on that like bringing the influx and you know or all of that and and then yeah as i kept progressing and building my my cv i did get involved in an avalanche and that also changed my 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 perspective on things um on the on the human uh, i yeah learned a huge lesson on the human aspect of things and i realized that you can know a lot of science and a lot of things but then for some reasons we just gonna betray ourselves and uh for and yeah and i've been very interested in knowing what's behind um the psychological aspects of uh our decisions and um mine in particular was um I really wanted to get into the ACMG program so badly. And um, we, I guess, I was contacted by this um, group of uh, guys who wanted to do the Bucks to Rogers Traverse. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. I mean, the Bucks to Rogers is kind of a, you know, when you do the Bucks to Rogers, then it's like you have your ticket pretty much to get into the program after that. So we all felt the same and uh, we engaged in this um, traverse and I didn't know any of the guys. We were a total of four. And um, yeah, the trip started and we got avalanche twice on the first day of the traverse. So as soon as we got off the helicopter, we started climbing uh snow patch call and um i was leading the group and um i regroup everyone underneath a rock and then um one guy um who was also in the party he takes lead um but um it was just very sudden like he's like okay i'm leading now and he takes off and he makes two switchbacks right above us and then um, he looks back down to where we were. He's like, uh, where should I go now? And in my mind, I'm like, oh, gosh. Like, if you are looking down and asking where should you go, you probably shouldn't be here. And so I'm starting slowly to realize that I probably should have shown, chose my partners better. But anyways, it's a committed traverse or helicopter had already left and so i step out of the rock and i'm like well i would just go continue to go to the right and then we can probably boot back from there the last section was pretty steep and um yeah he took two steps forward and cut a decent size two avalanche a windslap and um yeah, he was probably about 20 meters above me. And uh, luckily, at the place where I was standing, this, the slab was pretty thin. It was probably about 15, 20 centimeters. And I started jumping on my skis with the skins on. And I managed to get a uh, grip on the bed surface and just kind of hold it, hold it. And then the avalanche went by and... Um, yeah, it ran, yeah, a few, probably 100, 200 meters, I don't know. Um, yeah, so anyways, I went back up and then I regroup. Everybody's like, how are you doing? We're good. We continue on with the traverse. And then on the other side, we're um, almost to the point where we 
on last descent, and then you climb again up to the uh, Malo Igloo, and then I'm on the lead again, and I stop. I didn't like what I was seeing. The, the snowpack was, it was a very, like, the day was getting warm. Um, we flew in with um, low, low, low avalanche hazard, and then later in that, that day it was probably considerable and uh so we had this like um cloud and uh it was getting warm and uh yeah i stopped and there was kind of a roller a blind roll i didn't like and then another guy from behind he just keeps going in front of me so as you see it's like a total anarchy no leadership in the group i mean four of us wanted to be guides so it's like well might as well just like take it and uh so another guy went down and um he makes two three turns he goes over their blind roll and uh i heard him yelling and well i thought he said next or something he was just like Bleh! and uh i keep going down following his tracks the snow feels really heavy and it's kind of a warm snow, uh, new snow on the surface and laying over a crust. I really don't like it at that point. And uh, I keep following his tracks and his tracks ended on a crown that was like 30 centimeters deep. And then I found a ski pole. I found another ski pole below. Then I found another ski and then uh, I kept going down and I found uh, like a 10 meter cliff and below the cliff, there was a bigger crown and just a pile of debris moving. And I heard a guy pulling his airbag. He was doing the, <laughs> the traverse with an airbag. And um, yeah, so I heard the noise, he deployed the airbag. And then uh, everything stops, and then the cloud comes in again. But I, we saw him that he was partially buried up to his chest. He was breathing. We didn't know at that point uh, his medical condition. But um, yeah, so the other two guys came and uh, to the point where I was, and they were like, yeah, you should just go left and ski on that gully and then go and see how's he doing. It's like, I'm not going to ski that gully. It's probably going to go. It's like, it's the same configuration, just like exactly 10 meters to the right. So I'm like, no, we're building a, we're going to just rappel and stay on the bed surface and just, so that's what we did. And uh, I went down, he was fine. We smoke a cigarette and uh, yeah, we brew some tea and continue on. And uh, the next day we were at the Maloy Igloo in the morning and um, we decided we were like, okay, this it's kind of a rough start. What shall we do? Shall we keep going? Shall we uh, just pull the pin? And um, the other two guys, that never led or that were just, you know, like looking back, asking for decisions like, no, I think we should go. And, and I'm like, well, the guy who just got avalanche on, that was a size three anyway, that was a big one. And uh, he's like, well, I'm not so sure I want to go. And I'm like, I'm a little hesitant. I, I'm right in the middle, but probably I think it's a really bad idea because I don't know these people. At that point, I realized, who are these people? I mean, we want to get into the program, but you're not, you don't know if they're like really close to getting to the program or if they're just starting to work on their skills. So, and that's what I realized after. It's like, well, they probably have long ways to get into. And I didn't know, I, I didn't ask too many questions. I was just very uh, driven into getting into the program and I made really bad decisions. So at the end we were like, okay, um, 
let's just uh, see how this goes. And uh, we were going to do a transceiver check and uh, we realized that he had lost his transceiver on the avalanche, on the second avalanche. He was carrying his transceiver on his pocket and uh, the pocket for some reason got blown up open and the transceiver was gone. And uh, luckily we found him on the surface. Otherwise, if we would have conducted a transceiver search, we would have found the transceiver, but we would have not find him. And so I'm like, oh God, I think that's, that just save us all. You know, we're like, okay, no transceiver. We don't have a spare transceiver. Uh, let's just pull the pin and go home. And um, yeah, so that was a big one for me, especially in human factors. Incredible. The, uh, the group dynamics at play there and kind of that escalation of commitment um, certainly came to the fore. And yeah, group think for sure. Nobody wanted to be the, the bad guy and be like, this sounds like a bad idea. You know, we'll, we're committed and it's like it costs a lot of money to just do what I didn't care about the money, but some people do did at the moment. And uh, yeah, I just didn't know the people I was with. Then we came out to the car and I realized, oh, the the GPS was just taking out of that box. They probably didn't know how to use it. And uh, I'm like, oh gosh, I think I should ask more questions and get to know the people I'm going out with better, you know? And uh, yeah, what's your real motivation here? And like. And uh, yeah, that's that's definitely shaped me. And uh, when I teach, that's uh, kind of a very interesting story and in the topics that arise, especially in the human um, factor side of things. And I'm people are really keen on learning science and crystals, but it's like that's not it's wanna it's not gonna save you. What's gonna save you if be more conservative and honest with your health. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story, Hector. It's uh, it's certainly powerful to hear these from seasoned practitioners and people um, at various points in their career where they had these pivotal moments that you know go on to shape their you know next series of decisions, and then that gets shaped again by another pivotal moment. So, uh, appreciate you sharing that with us about your kind of ascension as a professional, as we've been talking about here and. The goals of the organization with, with Chile Avalanches and the team you've assembled is um, certainly um, an admirable goal to move towards and um, looking forward to, to hearing more about how things continue to progress. And uh, our listeners out there, you know, call to action would always be if you're interested in uh, progress of your own skills or you want to assist in a, one of the programs we're talking about on these interviews is, you know, reach out directly to, to Hector here and we'll put his information in the show notes. Um, Hector, I, yeah, I just really appreciate you being open and honest with us here and connecting with us before you begin your uh, your boreal winter up here in, in Alaska. Um, we'll look forward to hearing more about how things go from your winter and maybe in a future episode, we can connect with you as uh, your organizations progress. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate the, the time and uh, the space to talk about this. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we look forward to hearing from you soon and hope you have a good winter ahead. Buenísimo. That wraps up today's episode, and it's always nice sitting down with our colleagues from abroad to hear what's going on in their world and what excites them. Music for today's episode is provided by Ketza. Find the music to inspire your own intellectual curiosity at ketza.uk. Artwork for the show is created by Mike T. Give his website a visit at MikeTEA.com. This episode was produced by Caleb Merrill. And if you're out there on the social medias, give us a follow at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And whatever platform you're tuning in on, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell your grandparents too. Get them all on here. And if you have any feedback for us, 
or have some ideas on what we should be talking about and who we should be talking to, shoot us an email, theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in on April 1st, that's no joke, for our next episode. And as always, keep your tips up and maintain your ability to be surprised.